Welcome to episode 63 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. Uh, I'm Victoria Reynolds-Farmer, and with me today I have Nora Bonner and Marie Hawes. Blessed be the fruit, ladies. May the Lord open. May the Lord open. I almost forgot what to say. (laughs) Okay, so listeners, uh, as you can maybe tell by that opening, this episode is going to be about The Handmaid's Tale, both Margaret Atwood's novel and uh, the very recent Hulu TV series. So let's um, let's go ahead and get started uh, talking about some background, uh, how the book came to be and maybe what it has to say to our current period. Uh, Nora, can you start us off? Sure. So um, I read an article that was, I believe, on our reading list uh, called Margaret Atwood on what The Handmaid's Tale means in the age of Trump, uh, which she actually only addresses at the very end, really. But um, most of this article is about how the book came to be. Um, But it was pretty interesting. She said that she started writing it in Germany. And so... Uh, one of the quotes that stuck out to me that was interesting um, was that she uh, she said, I knew that established orders could vanish overnight, that anything could happen at any time. So that kind of idea of being in Germany in 1984 ref- um, made her start to think about the way that society regimes change, I guess. Um, And then she said that she wanted to write a book that took place in the future and that one of the rules was that, quote, I would not put any events into the book that had not already happened in what James Joyce called the nightmare of history, nor any technology not already available. So um, basically what I took away was just that she, um, she was looking at things that had already occurred more than predict, I guess, more than trying to predict those things was maybe her point. Um, So she mentioned there was a sharp, or there is a sharp fertility decline in Chinese men um, as being that aspect of the book that she drew from. So there's a couple of other things that were, um, that stood out to me too, that I just never noticed. Uh, from the book reading it. Um, One is that the name Offred has a connection to the word offered, which suggests sacrifice. Mm -hmm. Um, I never thought of it that way. And then another thing is that um, she offers reader, or she says that her readers are the ones who, um, who concluded that the 
narrator's name is June. And so I thought that was interesting in context of the TV show because they really solidify that or they establish the character as June pretty early on um, and refer to her as June throughout the series. And that's because, um, we can maybe talk about this at some point, but the point of view definitely um, shifts in the TV show in a way that the book doesn't. That's what the TV show kind of offers is these point of view shifts um, and gives a, a broader view of the society. Um, she also mentions her cameo on the show. So if you haven't seen it, we should probably say, um, turn this off and go watch the series and then come back because I'm sure we're going to spoil some things. Um, but one of the things that she spoils in this article is that she has a cameo in a scene that she mentioned or she refers to as a slut shaming scene which is interesting because she also mentions that when she wrote the book the word slut shaming hadn't really come about yet so um and she talks a bit about having that um being a part she plays an aunt on the first episode very quickly you you can only recognize her by her hair really um but she she goes into depth about the way that that acting as an aunt affected her and the things that it made her think about. Um, and one of the interesting quotes um, that came from that section of the article is when she says that all power is relative and in tough times any amount is seen as better than none, which I thought was a really interesting um, observation. And I think that's present in the novel too, but I do think also when you are acting out some of these ideas, they tend to hit you in different ways. Um, another thing that I learned from this article was that the 19, uh, that the bonnets, the hiding bonnets come from um, an, a 1940s advertisement for, for old Dutch cleanser rather than um, what other people, I guess, have suggested. In fact, I always thought that she was kind of basing um, just the idea of of covering the face from, I had heard that she had taken a trip to Afghanistan, and that, um, but it's interesting to me that she uses something that frightened her from her childhood. Um, so she goes on to discuss about, you know, questions people have for her about the relevancy of this book and what she intended. Um, and so she kind of leaves off by saying that the book ultimately functions as an example of the literature of witness. And, um, and she leaves the article on this note of, um, you know, the idea that Offred records her story, um, hoping for an audience. And that um, she says, you know, in the context of the things that are going on, Politically in our country now, she kind of passes, I guess, the baton to her readers um, and asks them to also be witness to this. Or like she says, she says, in the wake of the recent American election, fears and anxieties proliferate. Basic civil liberties are seen as endangered along with many of the rights for women won over the past decades and indeed the past centuries. In this divisive climate in which hate for many groups seems 
on the rise and scorn for democratic institutions is being expressed by extremists of all stripes, it is a certainty that someone, somewhere, many I would guess, are writing down what is happening as they themselves are experiencing it, or they will remember and record later if they can. And then she asks, will their messages be suppressed and hidden? Will they be found centuries later in an old house behind a wall? So to me, that really suggests um, that she sees that principle of, of being a witness and, um, and recording experience as being an important aspect of what she intended for the novel and, and her hope for the novel that it would encourage other people to do the same. So that's what I've got. Did I miss anything that you wanted to talk about with this? No, I, I think you covered that really well. Um, and in fact, I'm, uh, I'm just going to let you keep talking, Nora, um, and, and go into, um, you covered this a little bit, but go into your experiences um, reading the novel sort of how do you experience it as a as a written text and then um after you marie can go okay uh the first time i ever read it it was assigned to me as a sophomore in college i went to the university of michigan and took a literature survey of contemporary novels i think um, and at that time i did not consider myself to be a feminist at all so I remember enjoying the book and thinking that it was really interesting and it, I appreciated how, you know, the, the page turner that it was, but it didn't really affect me as being something that was commenting on something that, that was true to me, I guess. Um, and I would say that at that time in my life, I didn't really have much of a perception that I lived in a patriarchal society, even though I'm sure that my professor tried to um, tried to convince me of that. I didn't. I just didn't see the things as being a real threat, um, or or I did, I couldn't recognize any realities when I read the novel the first time. But uh, I picked it up again in May, so that I could. What was it? It must have been April, right? Um, I read it. I think the week before the show came out, just to um, be able to compare the two. And I found it to be really frightening <laughs> the second time. Um, I, you know, really read more like a horror novel than it did the first time. Um, so that's pretty much my comparison. Thanks, Nora. Uh, yeah, it, it is a really, um, a really scary novel. Um, and I, I think if you talk to a lot of people who have read it multiple times, um, they, they will say that their consciousness sort of... Um, evolves a little bit um, each each time they read it. So I, I don't think you're alone there. Uh, Marie, tell us about your experiences with the novel. Yeah, I have kind of a similar experience because I think the first time I read the novel was probably when I was in junior high and not as an assignment. I just picked it up as a science fiction adventure story, um, reading it for, you know, the novelty of the story. Um, and though I didn't really understand everything that was going on in the book, I think, um, some 
aspects of it have stayed with me since then. Some striking images, especially like, um, for example, the the power of the Scrabble tokens as described by Offred in her sort of reading starved state. And the way she talks about them as if she wants to like suck on them and eat them like hard candies. Like that image stayed with me as this this idea of the power of the forbidden, like the forbidden text and entering into the forbidden through language. And um, maybe I felt a little bit of that myself at the time when I was reading the novel because um, me being in junior high, the, the sexual content of the book was more blatant than what I was used to reading about. So it was a little bit scandalous and a little bit forbidden um, because of that for me. But like I said, I definitely, yeah, didn't understand really a lot of what was going on underneath um, the surface of the text. And um, I didn't really feel that application to my life like Nora was talking about. It was just reading it as this fantasy. Um, And when I read it again for in preparation for this episode, it was a very different experience. Um, Noticing all the different themes and complexities and, of course, um, a lot of more more of the frightening aspects of the book and its kind of real-world applications. Thanks, Marie. Uh, okay, so now uh, I'm going to talk about my kind of evolving experiences with the novel. Um, listeners, if you'll forgive me for going on a bit, uh, our summer series this summer, um, as, as usual, if you're not familiar with this show, we are going to do... Um, one episode per month this summer, and they're going to be loosely connected um, because all three of them are about secular texts that are important to us that have taught us Christian lessons. Uh, So I chose um, The Handmaid's Tale for the episode that I'm leading this summer. Uh, So I'm just going to go through, hopefully um, fairly quickly, um, the different lessons that I think the novel has taught me at different ages um, and and then open that up to the panel. So I've probably read this novel eight or ten times, I guess. Um, It's it's a a book that's very important to me. I used to call it one of my favorite novels. I don't think I can do that anymore. Um, More on that in a few minutes. But the first time I read it, I was uh, 14 or 15, um, and really the, the thing that stuck out to me um, from that first read was, wow, there are other people who might think that Christianity is sometimes kind of sexist. And, and that was like kind of a, a big watershed moment for me. Um, as someone who had grown up in the church, um, I I guess I just thought that um, because I didn't hear other people around me doing that kind of questioning, um, I, I didn't know that it was going on in places other than my own kind of adolescent brain at that time. So that was the first lesson. Um, and then later in college um, and then into graduate school, Um, I start to talk to more people, especially more women who are uh, well-read and who are thinking big, connected thoughts. Um, I remember distinctly one night in college, um, my two best friends were um, a Catholic young woman and a Jewish young woman, um, and we 
just a couple of weeks prior had all passed around um, this novel and Anita Diamond's The Red Tent, um, which I think we've talked about on this show before. And we were just having all these conversations about female relationships in sacred texts. And um, I, I had never really talked about those kinds of theological, philosophical questions with women my own age before. That was really illuminating for me, and I started to see a kind of strength in female relationships in my own life, and started to look at The Handmaid's Tale specifically um, in terms of its female relationships. Um, the relationship between Offred and Serena Joy in the novel is, is its most interesting relationship to me. Um, I want to talk in a few minutes about what the television show does with that relationship. I think it does some really interesting things. Um, but also the, the kind of hierarchical, um, I would say misogynistic or internalized misogynistic um, relationship between Offred and the ants. What does that mean that these in this incredibly patriarchal society, these women take power over other women any way they can? And not only that, um, their names are important, right? Uh, Aunt Lydia and Aunt Elizabeth are the kind of biggest aunts. So you have um, two powerful biblical women, um, Elizabeth, who... Uh, suffers from childlessness, which is, of course, important in the context of the novel, um, and then she trusts God, and then you have John and Jesus, and this is so powerful, their relationship together, and Elizabeth's relationship with Mary. Um, and if you look at Lydia and her uh, her faith and testimony, she's, um, you know, she's in charge of this beautiful fabric and then she receives God and receives this message and tells people about God and she has a lot of agency. So what does it mean that these ants have these uh, names? What does that mean for a female power in the Bible? So after I spend college and a little bit of graduate school thinking about theology and women and female strength and how those things fit together, um, I start thinking about um, some of these questions of, of textual freedom that Marie mentioned uh, in terms of our responsibility as Christians. How much responsibility do we have in terms of the way people both inside and outside of our faith tradition interpret our text? Um, what if they take it out of context? Um, whose context? When? you know, our, our relationships to each other and texts change. So what does all of that mean? Um, what about biblical literacy in our current time? Um, Nora mentioned, and this is kind of the, the biggest question um, on my mind right now in terms of the novel. Nora mentioned that everything that happens in Atwood's novel has happened at some point in history. Um, well, because lots of those things are taken from lots of different points in history. Um, I, I think that can maybe make people uh, look at the novel and see this kind of amalgamated Christianity that is more pseudo-Christianity than anything else. And, and I think that can maybe be a, a detriment to the kind of social reading that people are doing around the novel. So if all of that made any sense at all, uh, that is my 
15 year plus journey through the handmaid's tale uh and uh yeah that's what i got <laughs> nora and marie do you have any uh any thoughts about any of that well i want to know um what has disqualified the novel from being one of uh from you calling it one of your favorites uh i i think hmm I think it's because I've changed. I think I'm not the same person that I was when I read it the first time. Um, and maybe that's good. Um, but I, I think I, I can't call it one of my favorites because I have such complex emotions about it. I think it's, it's made me interrogate um, myself and my theology in ways that have been good but also kind of trying and painful so I, I think favorite is is too too simple a word to encapsulate that experience if that makes any sense yeah that makes sense I wondered if it had to do with your experience or emotional response to it or just your understanding of how it was made after having studied so many books probably but you no know, your your answer made sense yeah and I relate I think most strongly to the, the first two lessons that you point out. Um, even though I just read the book once when I was in junior high, I remember thinking back to it um, when I was in high school, thinking about, uh, yeah, there's this possible reading of some Christian practices as sexist, and um, this book lets me know that some other people think there might be sexism in Christianity too. So I, re I relate to that and the point about proof texting, especially um, like the, the way that pieces of scripture could be pulled out of context and used to create abuse. Um, that's, that's, um, I relate strongly to that lesson that you pulled out. Um, thinking especially of like, the the household code section that's quoted in the novel and I don't remember exactly which household code it was but one of the ones about women dressing modestly and being silent you know um, that was an example to me in high school of uh, maybe we sh these things can be misused so yeah um, I, I think that takes us um, into the first article pretty well, but, but before we do that, um, if we could just do a kind of lightning round of impressions of the television show, um, and, and then I think that will still give us plenty of, of opportunity to talk about proof texting um, in, the, in the Karen Swallow Prior article. So um, since Marie just finished, Nora, you start. What were your impressions of the Hulu series? Uh, my first impression was that uh, seeing it come to life affected me really strongly. Um, in fact, <laughs> I have, I think it was in the third episode, second or third, they had a, um, they had a protest and it turns into uh, like the military shoots at the people. It turned mm. uh, and that, um, and I don't usually react to things I watch uh, verbally, unless I'm trying to be funny or something, but I actually screamed, um, and my poor dog really was wondering what was going on, um, and then I started crying, um, and I think, I think that 
I guess is maybe a microcosm of, of the way I experienced the television show, which is that I, I noticed pretty early on that the, um, that the writers were making an effort to use images from our culture today. Um, and to me, that's where the, um, the TV show was the most interesting. So, and I think they probably filmed it before the women's March, but just the, I, you know, just the idea that I had, I had been in a March and then, and that, that that has happened in places where people have had that freedom taken from them, um, was affected me a lot. And, um, so that was one thing. Um, I found myself really looking forward to a new episode. I thought they did a good job of expanding the world. And, um, I, I got my husband to watch it uh, with me, which I was really glad that he did because it was nice to, to have someone to talk to about it immediately after each episode. Um, and, and I was just really struck by how they, how they built a world around, um, what Margaret Atwood offered to us in the novel. So they really kind of used that as like a foundation and took all, like I mentioned earlier, they, they allowed the narrative to go into different people's stories and, um, they allowed us to know more about the world because at first, I think the frustrating and purposefully frustrating thing about reading the novel is just how limited the perspective is. And, and as a reader, it's just, it builds your curiosity about, you know, well, how did this happen? And they, there's hints, but it doesn't really go into great detail about all the different, um, I guess, <laughs> facets of, of Gilead. We only know what what the narrator knows, and she's being withheld, a lot of information is withheld from the, her. So I really enjoyed the fact that the, the show tried to fill in some of those um, missing parts. Um, and I guess my last impression was that I really connected to it a lot. If you can't tell, I really like the show. Um, but I, I, I connected it to it mostly because Elizabeth Moss played Alfred and, um, I really enjoyed her in Mad Men. In fact, I watched Mad Men just to see what her character was doing. I loved her character so much on that show. And so to me, it was like watching Peggy Olsen go through Gilead. Um, I, and because I had loved her so much in the other role, it just, I think part of my emotional response uh, was, was from the fact that she played the character, but she also did a really good job. Um, and the last thing I'll say is that, and I, I, I'll mention this later too, um, but I was really interested in the, um, the New York Times review of the show episode by episode because they pointed out um, one of the show's flaws, which maybe we can talk about whether or not it was a flaw. I don't know if we have time. Um, but they drew attention to the racial blindness of the show. Um, and so that... I appreciated the fact that it made me think of that, like the way that that the cast uh, race was being used in the casting and and what that did to the world and um, because in my own work, I think a lot about race in my own life, um, so I guess I appreciated the show for making me think about that too, even though i'm I'm not sure that was one of the show's 
strong points, but if we have time, maybe we can discuss the role of race in the way that they have revised the story. That's all I've got for this one. Sorry for the rambling. No, lots of uh, lots of really great thoughts there, um, and I, I hope we do have time to to talk about um, talk about race because I, yeah, I'm I'm not sure how I feel about the changes that were made there. Um, but Marie, tell us what you thought about the TV show. Okay, sure. Yeah, um, I've generally liked the series so far, though it took me a little bit to get into it the first couple episodes. I just kind of really wished there wasn't the voiceover narration. It was just grating for some reason to me. But then I got into it. And um, like Nora was talking about the the details of the expansion of the world, that was really cool to me. Um, And another thing that I liked that she also mentioned was this uh, inclusion of the characters of color that are like, that's really missing from the book, but at the same time, I'm also, uh, like Nora mentioned, wondering kind of how criticism of racism might come up in the show, as it really hasn't, but you would sort of expect that this extremist regime would not, like, there'd still probably be racism in existence. So, anyway, I'm wondering how that will come up. Um, I've also liked the show being even more direct than the book, although it was already there, in dealing with uh, lesbian characters by making of Glenn a lesbian and portraying her punishment for that, while that sort of remained more off-screen in the novel, um, the punishment of the gender traitors. And I've also enjoyed, in terms of the expansion of the details of the the novel and the way that changes are made, um, how some parts that other characters had in the novel have been kind of reassigned to June to have them more centralized in our experience of the world through her eyes, um, like her eating the this cookie of dis- debasement um, at one point rather than having Janine do that. Um, so that kind, those kind of details have worked out well, I think. And also, um, a, th- a change I really like in the show is that well, it retains this attention to the conflict among women that's uh, part of the complexity of the novel. Um, it does have Offred being much more sympathetic towards Janine than the book does. And um, that just, I, I, I like that change because I guess I like the character of Janine. Um, I, I kind felt of, so sorry for Janine when I was reading the book. So I, yeah. I, I like that she, because like she's obviously postpartum depressed, right? Like this woman, she's yeah. obviously postpartum depressed. And to the point that 14 year old me in first read wrote obviously postpartum depressed. So if I am a teenager and can figure that out, like what are these people doing? Um, yeah. And I'm, of course, it's realistic for Alfred to be, you know, a very imperfect character. But I kind of like seeing her solidarity with Janine here, you know. Yes. And the cookie uh, made me yell out loud in my living room. Like I knew it, <laughs> I knew it was coming because I've read this book a million times. But I was yeah. just like, no, don't do it. Don't <laughs> eat the cookie. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I kind of wonder how long the shows can go on though because it seems like it's used a lot of the material from the novel so I'm a little worried that it might degenerate into some kind of long drawn out spy conflict here comes the resistance love triangle kind of story and I really hope that doesn't happen so I kind of wonder how they'll avoid that Um, and one last thing I've liked about the show is 
I really like the character of Serena Joy as portrayed um, by Yvonne Stravowski in the show, um, who's just wonderful in this role, I think. Though I yes, also have my favorite. Some kind of mixed feelings about the change to the character, which we'll talk about in a little while. So, <laughs> yeah, that's my impressions of the show so far. <laughs> Can I just um, comment about the because I wanted to say earlier too about like just the fact that there's going to be more seasons. Um, I I remarked to J- my husband Jeremy several times that that I could watch ten seasons of the show. I could. I mean, just. I would watch just footage of them shopping and not saying anything. And I think it's just because it's so, one, it's so beautifully shot, but also just, there's just so many questions I have that I want them to answer about that aren't in the book, but I don't know. I I share your trepidation, Marie. I I feel (laughs) like this could go to a bad place because we're already at the end of the book. Um, I mean, the, the end of the first season is, is essentially the end of the book with a few things added. Um, so yeah, I, I hope it doesn't turn into like the clandestine Nick and June spy love story. I don't want that. Yeah. Uh, but I guess it's, it's my turn to talk about the TV show. Um, so I'm going to be Debbie Downer a little bit. Uh, you both liked it more than I did. Uh, I, I had to force myself today, the day of our recording to finish it. Um, cause I, I just, I didn't really want to. I was pretty frustrated. Um, but that is probably because um, I couldn't take my appropriation scholar hat off. And, um, and one of the things that I really love about the book is how small and contained it is. How we do get one person's really tiny view of what is a really tiny society and you can sort of feel the lines between the lines and feel um, that there is more than she can say in all the pages. Um, and I, the, the show, partly on purpose because it's the medium of television and there's only so much you can uh, do visually that is, of course, different than what you can do on a page. Um, the, the show kind of blows open that smallness um, in, in a way that, to me, made for a good and sometimes beautiful piece of television, but an appropriation that um, was not true to the spirit of the novel to me. Like, it, it didn't feel like the thing. Um, but there, there are a lot of things that I like um, about the show. But before I talk about the things I like, I want to talk about the thing I hated the most, uh, which is the music choices. Um, <laughs> not, not, neither of you mentioned the music. Did you hate it as much as I did? I rarely have strong feelings about music, so <laughs> that's just, not my area. <laughs> I, I really, those music choices think that we as an audience are stupid and cannot interpret things. I, I thought it was so heavy-handed and so on the nose. Um, the, the use of Don't You Forget About Me at the end of the second episode. Um when uh when Alfred is sort of learning I'm sorry that's the second episode so at the end of the second episode when she gets her first taste of freedom and leaves Commander Waterford's house um it plays Don't You Forget About Me 
And then, um, like, when they go to Jezebel's, the sort of underground brothel, when she's going in and she's confused, uh, they play White Rabbit by Jefferson Airplane. Because she's through the rabbit hole and it's a scary place. Like, yeah, we get it. We know what she's feeling. You don't have to shove it down our throats. I don't know. I thought the music was really stupid. Uh, These thoughts did not occur to me at all. But I understand your critique. Yeah. All right. Sorry. Um, what else? We've all said that Serena Joy is cool, so we should get to the articles, uh, soon. Um, let's just go ahead and do that. So the first reading that we're going to talk about is, um, by Karen Swallow Pryor, who I actually used, uh, in our previous episode, too, so I'm, I'm becoming a, a big, uh, fan of hers. Um, it's from the Think Christian blog, and it is called uh, The Handmaid's Tale Dystopia by Proof Texting. And um, she essentially argues that Gilead is the way it is because it is a society created entirely of biblical symbols that become pseudo-biblical because they are plucked from their context and shoved back together. Um, the uh, The... She uses the shopping as an example, which Nora mentioned is a really powerful visual um, in the TV show. Uh, Because it is illegal in Gilead for women to read and write, all of the packages um, and signs are just just visuals without words. Like there's a picture of a steak and that's where the meat counter is. And there's a picture of, is it an orange, the fruit counter, I think. Um, anyway, these pictures without words, um, and Pryor argues that, that that's kind of a, a microcosm of, of how the novel works, and that this is kind of dangerous um, for both people within the faith and people without, because if we are not biblically literate as Christians enough to say this kind of proof test texting is not the way Christianity is supposed to work, then we're giving a false representation of our faith and our theological tradition to people who kind of, you know, don't know enough to know that it's false. Uh, so I, I thought that this was a really, um, a really interesting article and also just kind of summed up the progression of my thoughts on the novel um, and, and why, um, why it had kind of changed uh, in importance to me as my theology had developed. Uh, I also couldn't stop thinking about the way the television show um, highlights this kind of proof texting. Um, they, the Society of Gilead messes around with the Beatitudes a lot. They um, use them to control the handmaids, and there's a scene in one of the early episodes Um, which is taken pretty straight from the book where um, Aunt Lydia is trying to chastise Offred for essentially being too willful. Um, And Aunt Lydia says, uh, blessed are the meek dear. And then in voiceover, we hear Offred think uh, they always left out the part about inheriting the earth. So this idea of, as Marie was saying earlier, taking... um, biblical text out of context in order to, um, to oppress or abuse, uh, people. So I, I think that, uh, Pryor makes some really good points, 
um, in her article. And uh, yeah, I liked it a lot. What did the two of you think? And did I leave out anything important in my kind of haphazard summary there? I don't think that you left anything out. Um, I, th- I, um, I agree with her assessment. I think that the, um, I think that maybe the Handmaid's Tale is looking a step beyond. Just, I mean, I think that it's not just proof texting that has made this society, but from just from my point of view. Um, it's used to reinforce what's already there. And I guess that's probably what, what proof texting is about. Um, so maybe I'm not thinking of the term correctly. But to me, I would articulate like the problem behind Gilead's use of the Bible. Um, and maybe you disagree. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but I would articulate it as a tendency to to not recognize the link between how we interpret the Bible and how um, we're influenced in our interpretations by other outside influences. And and of course, the answer would be to to study the Bible and to study the context. But I think a lot of times I hear language about... Um, when people talk about interpreting the Bible, they don't take into consideration the fact that when you do see somebody determine something based on one verse, a worldview based on one verse, um, I, I don't see a per, that person acknowledge the fact that, that the worldviews of today and the, you know, the patriarchal <laughs> things that exists in our culture today are influencing that even if they say oh I have the traditional view see the Bible says this but it's actually how I would interpret it is like the the um the the our views of women today are slut shaming today for instance is why we read those modesty passages the way we do does that make sense that's interesting so you're you're sort of building the hermeneutic not backwards, but backwards from the way that Karen Swallow Pryor says it's built. That's interesting. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, and I I would add to that. I think the way that the Bible is being used in the novel, um, or the criticism of the way it's being used in the novel, is related back to to the whole question of reading and writing and interpreting at all. So it's not just, um, although it is, but it's not just um, how the article ends up saying uh, that The Handmaid's Tale reminds us just how important right reading and interpretation are, although it does do that, um, but it's also reminding us how important the freedom of reading and interpretation itself is. Um, because, uh, so in the article, there's this wonderful quote where she says, the wings on the white caps worn by the handmaids like blinders put on a cart horse cultivate them for a solipsistic world in which all they see, all that exists for them is only what is right in front of their nose. Um, so, uh, she takes this as, a kind of a, an image of proof texting and zeroing in on the one verse like Nora was talking about, but it's also... Um, an image of having the reading and interpretation being done for the women. Um, Like, they're not allowed to read, they're not allowed to see the world around them. Um, It's all just set there before them. Um, And 
part of part of the problem with that in the novel is of course that they're not supposed to have the freedom to for example interpret the beatitudes for themselves like Alfred does um they're supposed to have it all determined for them um and of course the having it be determined in the wrong way <laughs> is a large part of the problem but just the the lack of being able to d determine it for themselves at all is um the even larger problem i think they have freedom from and not freedom to, as Aunt exactly. Lydia says. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. An another thing um, that I think that the, the TV show makes clear, at least it made clear to me than the book, but of course I, ha I don't have the same multiple reading <laughs> that you do, Victoria, is the relationship between the way the Bible was used to justify slavery and the way that the Bible is being used to justify this type of slavery that is the handmaid um and absolutely yeah yeah so um and in fact i i just got into a debate the other day with some people about about that um because a lot of people think wrongly that the bible just if that um the bible is a text that gives permission to have to have slaves when in nowhere in the bible does it actually say you know I think it's a good idea if or God says it's great for you to have a slave. Um, especially in the Old Testament, God gets pretty angry about slavery. <laughs> um, but so that's just like a, a an example because during slavery, people use it as a permission slip. Paul's comments about how to behave as a master or slave as a permission slip to um, perpetuate the system of slavery without a comparing the systems and b um, thinking about what Paul was trying to get at by uh, through those passages which are you know what was his what was his end that he had in mind um, and I think that the handmaid's tale does that really well and the TV show just is that was one to me um, advantage of having. <laughs> a few black handmaids because the dress looks like 19th century uh, dress. And so when you did see an African-American in this dress, it, it really did, um, when you see Moira in this dress a few times, it really did to me um, uh, ask the, the viewer to connect this to our American slavery. It's, and especially because the Quaker, you know, I think that Mar uh, Atwood had this in mind because the the Quakers are the freedom fighters, you know, <laughs> in in both cases, right? So, um, they yeah, the, there's like the an Quakers, underground railroad. Yeah, run the underground female road with some some interesting language. And they're escaping to ca to Canada, you know. There, it's there's a lot of direct ties, which I think that that the show. Um, really highlights a lot, but but the book too, and and the Bible is is clearly related to that because at the time, whether or not uh, people used theological arguments to justify the system of slavery. So, yeah, that's a great point, and the the comparison um, applies too. I think to the way that that theological biblical justification of slavery had. Um, like social consequences when it came to people debating uh, debating the interpretation of the Bible because the people debating themselves uh, had their own 
like social standing at stake being like those in favor of abolition would be told like no you don't believe the bible um and that would create you know problems and you have that same kind of thing going on that quest that tying of social standing and worth to um conforming to a particular interpretation um in the regime in gilead yeah that's that's really interesting um i wish we could talk more about this but we need to move on to the next article um as I said, I'm super interested in the relationship between Serena Joy and Alfred, um, and we have mentioned that uh, her portrayal by Yvonne, is it Strahovski? Am I saying that right? I'm not sure, actually. <laughs> We're going to go with Strahovski. Um, is interesting because she is, in fact, much younger. Um, she and uh, the commander, played by Joseph Fiennes, um, are both much younger here than they are um, in the novel. So tell us about um, Serena Joy on the television show, Marie. Okay, so this article that's t discussing this, the casting of Serena Joy, Joy and this difference in age that you're talking about um, is titled, Here's Why Serena Joy is Much Younger in Hulu's Version of The Handmaid's Tale, and it's by Kim Renfro from April 28th on Business Insider. Um, and the content is from an interview that Bruce Miller, who adapted the show for TV, um, gave to Business Insider. Um, so it talks about how Serena Joy, who's of course the wife of Commander Waterford, is, like you mentioned, older in the in the book than she is in the show. In the book, she's described as you know arthritic, having to use a cane. Um, but here, she's played by the 35-year-old Yvonne Stravowski, um, and the the article provides some different reasons. A number of different reasons for this casting. One is that um, Miller says he wanted a different dynamic in the show than in the book between Serena Joy and Offred, um, one that could expand and go in different directions should the show go on for multiple seasons. Um, he wanted there to be more tension around Offred potentially usurping the role of the romantic, uh, intimate sexual duties of the wife. Um, he wanted there to be, uh, well, he didn't necessarily want there to be, but he mentions the surprising potential um, that Serena Joy and Alfred could have been friends in different circumstances that he feels comes out more um, through this casting. Uh, another reason for a younger casting of Serena Joy is the tensions that are created around the possibility, and here's another spoiler, uh, that Serena Joy could be fertile and that the commander is himself um, the infertile one and um, being younger in the show than in the book. I guess one of the possible ramifications of this for future seasons is that Serena Joy could potentially herself become pregnant. Um, and then there's the casting of Stravowski herself. So her acting, uh, Miller points out, is very powerful, making the viewers feel sorry for Serena Joy, which is actually you know quite a feat for this character. Um, and physically, she's he describes her as terrifying, tall, and physically intimidating, um, which adds to the, the terror that is surrounding Alfred. 
Um, she's also, he discusses, able to be more physically aggressive than an older woman would potentially be. So, um, for example, able to throw herself down on the floor as she's screaming at Alfred. Um, all of these are, you know, no doubt true reasons. I would say about this article, though, that, I, I mean... It's a little bit disingenuous because it's obvious to me this is like not the main reason for there to be a younger casting of Serena Joy. Uh, I think yeah, they're young and <laughs> they're young and hot and on our TV. Yes, that's oh, I think really the main reason that they are um, avoiding owning up to there. <laughs> and also, I couldn't reading this. I couldn't help wondering like why couldn't an older woman potentially you know be friends with a younger woman or couldn't an older wife also feel tension around a younger woman usurping romantic and sexual duties as in fact the character does in the book it seems um so there's and have, an have older guys, woman could physically aggressive i don't know have you guys seen the movie the the 90s movie with um Faye Dunaway as Serena Joy i have not I did, but I can't remember anything about it. So every, everything about that movie is garbage except for Faye Dunaway's performance. Like, it's so good and so strong and scary. And um, even Robert Duvall is bad. Robert Duvall plays the commander. He's not bad in a lot of stuff, in my opinion, but he's just really scenery chewy. Um, and that movie has a voiceover problem, too. But to, <laughs> to, uh, to your point, um, Marie... I, I do. I think that, you know, an older woman could have done all of those things because Faye Dunaway does some of, some of them in, in the older movie. Um, I, I, yeah, really, I guess the only only difference would be we wouldn't expect uh, an older woman to potentially become pregnant in a later season. But, yeah. That's a big difference. Yeah, yeah. So I have those kind of reservations when it comes to the like ageism of the casting change but at the same time I can't help but you know I, I love the choice of casting because I love this character as portrayed by Stravosky um, she's just such a powerful character you know more fleshed out in, than in the book and um, when it comes to the changes in the character itself not just the casting I like having her be an author not just a television personality or I mean uh, I say just as if it's dismissive but I like the, the dynamic of her being an author when it comes to the laws against reading and writing for women yes um, that's very yeah. interesting and I, I think that that change from the book or sort of amalgam from the book is interesting too um, so we get we get two kind of descriptions of Serena Joy in the text of the book that are very clearly mapped on to um, two specific uh, contemporary uh, anti-feminist figures in the 70s and 80s. Um, they're on pages 45 and 46 of my paperback edition. Um, so I'm just going to quote really quickly. Here's the first one. Uh, she wasn't singing anymore by then. She was making speeches. She was good at it. Her speeches were about the sanctity of the home, about how women should stay home. Serena Joy didn't do this herself. She made speeches instead, but she presented this failure of hers as a sacrifice she was making for the good of all. Um, so that's the first kind of description of her 
job we have. Um, this is pretty clearly a reference to Phyllis Schlafly, um, founder of the Eagle Forum and ardent opponent of the Equal Rights Amendment. Uh, here's the, the second description, um, which talks about Serena Joy's past as a uh, kind of televangelist. We'd watch her sprayed hair and her hysteria and the tears she could still produce at will and the mascara blackening her cheeks. By that time, she was wearing more makeup. We thought she was funny, or Luke, Offred's husband, thought she was funny. I only pretended to think so. Really, she was a little frightening. She was in earnest. Um, and, and that description is, is pretty clearly uh, Tammy Faye Baker Mesner, um, who, who doesn't end up... Uh, in a great place, as we all probably know. Uh, so I, I think it's interesting that we get um, we get less Tammy Faye and more Phyllis Schlafly, though younger. Um, and I would argue um, also a pretty healthy dash of um, Mary Pride, founder of the Christian anti-feminist homeschooling movement. Uh, Serena Joy's book in the show is called A Woman's Place, um, and its description sounds pretty close to Mary Pride's 1985 book, The Way Home, Beyond Feminism, Back to Reality. Uh, I, I don't have proof that uh, one book was based on the other, but I, I do have a, a gut feeling that that's true. Um, and I, I think that it's good that she's less Tammy Faye and more Phyllis Schlafly, because Phyllis Schlafly was taken more seriously than um, Tammy Faye ever was. And I think that's good for this character. I think we need to see her as less of a joke and be more scared of her. I think that Tammy Faye aspect of the novel kind of dates the novel. And I, so that was one way that I guess I justified the younger Serena Joy um, is that she felt more relevant because we don't really have... I feel like at this point in history, the televangelist is like you said, is not taken seriously. And at one point it, it might've been. Um, or at least they're different, right? Like yeah. um, I was thinking of someone like Joy Joyce Meyer, right? Who is, is an incredible, she is a billionaire um, female televangelist who um, has an empire, but she um, she's more, more Serena Joy, more current Serena Joy than book Serena Joy, I think. I think so too. I and I think that she's more than Joyce Meyer is, is an enterprise, not just. Well, I don't know anything about the Baker story, I guess. Um, but to me, I thought what was interesting was the um, just how uh, I think having her be young made her made us consider that she had her own idea of what progress was. I don't know if this makes sense. I don't know if. Um, that couldn't have happened with an older actress. But the fact that you have um, one brand of feminism, uh, you know, among the relationship between Moira and June versus what Serena Joy seemed to believe was, was her brand of feminism, I thought because the ages, I thought the age emphasized that kind of, um, coin flipping, if that makes sense. Because there is a, I mean, I noticed that a lot, um, that, that, uh, women, uh, who are part of the church sometimes, um, want to, to say, no, we have, 
we have our own view of what what uh, I guess the woman's place maybe, but but in a way that it it seems like it is it is I don't know if progress is the best word either. Maybe you can help me out. But there is this um, you know idea that it's revolutionary for a woman to be able to to fulfill the the things that the character Serena Joy seems to have written about in her book. Sure, this idea of a, a kind of conservative revolution of um, modesty as rebellion. Um, yeah, the, exactly, that, that, exactly. That kind of language um, happens happens all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think to, to kind of piggyback um, a little bit on what you were saying about her youth, um, I think we... It, it it's a kind of mental shorthand, I guess we do. Because she is younger, we kind of see her as having more in front of her, right? There are more kind of uh, political possibilities, more places for her to go that are shut off by this political change that she kind of doesn't see coming, um, as, as really clearly evidenced by... Um, I'll talk about this one scene and then we need to move on to recommendations. Um, that wonderful moment with the Mexican ambassador. Mm-hmm. Um, that I, yes, I, like, I, I love that. I didn't know whether to laugh or cry. I think I kind of did both at once um, when, I was, when I was watching it. So the Mexican ambassador comes to the Waterford home and, and Offred is kind of trotted out um, and they tell her, you know, to say that she loves her situation and she's lying about it and blah, blah, blah. And when she walks in to be introduced to the ambassador, she, because of her Gilead, Gileadite, Gileadin uh, conditioning, assumes that uh, the male attache with the ambassador is the ambassador, when in fact the ambassador is a woman. Uh, and then, uh, there's a kind of dun-dun-dun moment where everybody in the room kind of pauses and freaks out, and then, um, the Mexican ambassador starts to interrogate Serena Joy a little bit. It gets pretty pointed. Um, at one point she asks her, like, how does it feel to help draft legislation to help write legislation that outlawed your own writing like what 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 is that like um and and Serena Joy just kind of withdraws and says that she thinks you know she stands by her choices and thinks that she did the right thing but that that was a really um a really interesting moment for me yeah I agree that I I love that whole episode as an example of the tv show being used in, in the best way of being able to expand the world. Um, and that's <laughs> back to my earlier comment. Like, I would watch an episode that takes place in all these different countries just because I'm yeah. so curious <laughs> to know, like, how all of these countries are dealing with um, this crisis. But, yeah, that was a great one. Yeah, going along with that, just one thing I like about the changes of her character is that she does have she is involved in the drafting of the laws. She is part of this inner circle and then is excluded from it. So it's just it's very um both pointed of course, but uh powerful. Okay, well we're running a little long, so uh let's move on to our final segment of this and every episode, our passing on segment. Nora, what recommendation do you have for us? 
I mentioned earlier that as I was watching the show, I followed the New York Times reviews of each episode, and um, I actually couldn't find the first, the one for the first episode. But the author that I was following, her name is Angelica Jade Bastien, I think is how you say her, Bastien maybe. Um, and she is the one who uh, had the critique about the way that race was used in the show. So if you want to think about that more, um, you might want to... I put the link for this, the review of the second episode. I think that they had somebody else do the, the first one, um, and then she might have done the rest. Um, but anyway, those are worth reading just to kind of get a balanced view of the show and just to start to think about the complications of taking the novel and trying to put it into a, a different medium. Marie, what do you have for us? Well, one work that I was thinking of as I was rereading the novel and watching the show was Shirin Ebadi's autobiographical account, Iran Awakening, One Woman's Journey to Reclaim Her Life and Country, published in 2007. Ebadi um, is the first woman judge in Iran, and um, when the 1979 Islamic Revolution happened, she was demoted from judge to secretary due to women not being allowed to be judges under new laws. Um, and I was thinking of the work because not only does it have this same unbreakable kind of feminist spirit of struggle and reform that animates The Handmaid's Tale, but it also provides this real-life account of both the gradual and the sudden changes that could take place in a shift into an extremist patriarchal regime. Um, so I was thinking especially actually of that scene with the Mexican amb ambassador that we just talked about because there's a similar thing that happens to a body um, who initially had supported the Islamic revolution um, and then after uh, with the subsequent um, laws being passed and so on there's a scene where somebody's asking her about well what did you expect and she um, has that same kind of moment um, and the, I was also thinking particularly of another scene that occurs both in the novel and um, in the show in which after women are, it's been declared that women are no longer allowed to work or to have money. Um, we have Luke attempting to comfort June. Um, and I was reminded then of a body's account of her own sense of like her painful powerlessness um, and how she feels her own relationship to her husband shifting uh, when these new laws, uh, new gender-specific laws are put into effect um, in her country. Uh, and uh, how, yeah, she feels her own relationship to her husband changing despite their their individual relationship being separate from the laws. So there's like some specific parallels, but also just the larger regime change going on shows um, like Nora was talking about how established orders could vanish overnight. Um, and it's, it's a very good book. Thanks Marie. Um, so my recommendation um, is a check this out recommendation and not necessarily a full endorsement recommendation. Um, I should say, the past few months I've been thinking a lot about um, the ways that my Christianity intersects with my politics. Uh, there, are, there are things uh, 
where I, I've just kind of started to think I, I don't really fit in either of the main political parties. Um, a few weeks ago, there was uh, a, a high-ranking Democratic official who said, um, if you're pro-life, don't bother running as a Democrat, essentially. Um, there was the kind of exclusion of a number of, of pro-life women's groups from, uh, from the Women's March on Washington. Um, and I, I really, I'm conflicted about a lot of those things. So I, I started mm. kind of lo- looking around um, and, and seeing what else was out there. Um, and through primarily my husband's recommendation, who discovered these people before I did, um, I found the American Solidarity Party, which is a, a third party. Um, they are a Christian Democratic political party. Um, they're socially conservative and economically distributist. So they're they're um, not necessarily. I don't think I would call them fiscally liberal, though I would call them more fiscally liberal than a number of uh, other mainstream parties. Um, And they're really, really pro-life. They're not just against abortion. They're also against capital punishment, um, uh, euthanasia, uh, things like that. They are um, opposed to pornography they want to protect both marriage and family at the workplace level to not just sort of namby-pamby um, social policies. They want actual change um, so that people can have families kind of from the ground up level. Um, so there's a, a lot of really interesting um, things there, I think, for Christians who are interested in maintaining their theology and also interested in social justice issues. So again, not a full endorsement because I'm, I'm still just sort of looking into this, but a maybe you want to check out the American Solidarity Party if you are as conflicted as I am about political things. So that is uh, all we have for you today. Thank you for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd like to hear from you. If you have a topic or a reading recommendation for future shows, or if you just want to say hi, do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page and check out show notes from this and other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison, and Elizabeth Bremner is our intern. For Nora and Marie, I'm Victoria. Tune in in two to four weeks when we will discuss Neil Gaiman's The Ocean at the End of the Lane. Until then, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things love.